Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo wants to spend $5 million on a study about the feasibility of a tunnel under Long Island Sound that would connect New York and Connecticut. The cost of such a tunnel? Oh, about $10 billion to start. Meanwhile, Amtrak is floating a similar idea, but not for cars, of course, but for new high-speed trains. It's part of a wave of big ideas in transportation that are sweeping across a nation that is in need of big infrastructure improvements. But what does it take to build a tunnel like this? Is it even practical? Today, where we live, we'll dig into these questions with transportation experts, and we want to ask you, do you commute between Connecticut and Long Island? Does the idea of a cross-sound tunnel appeal to you? Why or why not? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Transportation expert Yona Freemark will join us in just a few moments. But first, I want to bring in Nasri Munfa, who's chairman of HNTB Tunnel Services, also an adjunct professor at Columbia University, where he teaches courses on tunneling and underground engineering. Nasri Munfa, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. So w- where do you start when you think about a major underwater water tunneling project like this? I mean, if, if you were to start to draw up plans for a tunnel that connected Long Island and the Connecticut shoreline, I mean, where do you start? Uh, actually, this is a very important question and has nothing to do with the tunnel. It has to do with the transportation modes on both sides and the transportation needs on both sides of the sound. And that is you need to identify the origin and the destination of the people or the cargo that it will be going in between. And that will identify what would be the probably the best location for the crossing. Subsequent to that, you need to obviously you need to have the shortest distance for that crossing, and it needs to be also in a favorable uh, ground condition and depth condition. So all of these factors come into play to determine what will be the best uh, crossing uh, uh, location. Of course, yes. Yeah. So the transportation needs on both sides. You have. I'm sure some very serious political repercussions about where a tunnel might be dug on either side. And then you have to make the shortest possible distance between the two things. Um, maybe in just a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit more about the transportation needs on, on both sides. But but let's talk a bit about the process of actually tunneling underwater like this. Is it as amazing and complicated as it seems to us lay people, Nasri, people who don't understand how it works? I mean, is it an incredibly complicated process? Well, uh, it is not an easy process, that's for sure. However, uh, recent uh, technology advancement in the last 20 years or so have made a lot of these monumental jobs that could not have been done before feasible. As a matter of fact, we just completed a project crossing the Bosphorus in Istanbul, connecting the uh, Asian side with the European side. Uh, That is about... uh, five kilometer in length and it is uh, 110 meter in depth below the water surface so that was a very challenging project it was uh, 
uh, bore through last August, and it will be operational uh, in 2017. So uh, what could not have been done 20 years ago is uh, becoming technically feasible at the present time. What about the environmental factors? What sort of things do you have to take into consideration about the disruption of the environment, whether it's under the Bosphorus or under a Long Island Sound? Right. Uh, there are uh, at least two types of construction of tunnels for underwater crossing. One uh, method is called immersed tube tunnel, and that is uh, dredging a channel in the uh, uh, bay bottom, for example, or the sound bottom here, fabricating uh, concrete tubes, placing them, and then backfilling them. This is more disturbing and has more environmental uh, precaution than doing a tunnel excavation using tunnel boring machine, which would go completely underground and it will not disturb the bottom of the of, of the waterway. Uh, that is less environmentally uh, disturbing. Uh, however, in both sides, the most impact will be uh, really at the shoreline where you land into the into the land side and where you make the connection and that where issues need to be addressed. And all of these issues have been uh, addressed and have been uh, where the solutions have been identified for them, whether it is a noise, whether it is uh, uh, dust or air quality. And, uh, and so on. So all of these uh, have been uh, identified and addressed in technical solutions. Of course, as you said right off the top, the reason why anyone would want to build a tunnel like this is not because we've got an extra $10 billion to spend or we think it's a big idea, but because it would, in theory, alleviate some congestion problems or change something important about the traffic pattern. As you look at a project like this, Nasri, I mean, what do you see as far as the transportation needs? Because in the Northeast Corridor here, we're talking about everything from city congestion to people who commute from one place to another to people who just drive through from uh, mid-Atlantic states up to New England. There's so many things to take into account. I mean, how do you begin to get your, your brain around the traffic needs on either side of a tunnel so that you can determine what's best? Well, that is uh, obviously there are traffic studies need to do. De- to be determined and uh, uh, people movement as well as cargo movement, as I said earlier. Uh, However, as you know, the configuration of the island and also the entire uh, uh, metropolitan area in Connecticut, it's, uh, it's very confined as such. A lot of the traffic right now in Long Island going up north has to go all the way through almost to the city and hit the city traffic and go back up around the, around the, the the sound and this idea has been uh, in discussions going back to i believe to the 50s so it's not a new idea but it has not been implemented because of the technology and because of the cost uh, associated with that and, and and so on so uh I believe when you do the traffic studies and the assessment, we will find out that there is a need. The question is how to solve that need. Is it uh, individual uh, cars? Is it uh, commuter? Is it uh, 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 rail system? But uh, we anticipate that the need is going to be there, and we anticipate that the need will uh, will increase, mm. uh, considering the present congestion and the tendency, as you have seen it lately, the tendency of the people migrating back into the cities rather than spreading out. 
Uh, we're talking with Nasser Munfal, who's chairman of HNTV Tunnel Services. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia University. He's a, a tunneling expert. If you want to join our conversation, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live as we talk about the concept of a, a big tunnel that would connect Long Island and Connecticut, something that New York's governor has talked about and Amtrak has as well. I want to bring in Sarah Lasko, who's a staff writer for Atlas Obscura. She's covered transportation and the environment for many years, including writing about tunneling projects like these. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hey. So before I get to some of the things you've written about, about the tunnel systems that already connect to New York, when you hear about a project like this, as someone who's covered this for a while, I mean, what do you think? Does this sound pretty cool to you? Does it sound like just an enormous $10 billion boondoggle? What do you think about it? I mean, anytime you're bringing people on cars across a river or a waterway on a ferry, I mean, it seems like a pretty good idea to think about having a tunnel if it's technologically feasible. But you're right. These are huge projects, and they need to last for a really long time. And um, it's always a commitment of many, many, many years, both to build them and then maintain them. Of course, New York has underwater tunnels already connecting to it, uh, uh, tunnels under the Hudson and East Rivers. Uh, those tunnels have been around for a, a long time. I mean, how how are they doing? Are, do they, are they in need of a lot of repair? Do they actually do what they're supposed to do? Well, they do what they're supposed to do. I mean, these tunnels are over 100 years old. Some of the most recent ones were built in, you know, the early 1900s, 1910, um, is maybe one of the last train tunnels. Um, and they work. I mean, people, hundreds of thousands of people go through these tunnels every day on PATH trains and Amtrak trains and New Jersey transit trains. But at the same time, they're getting old and they're really suffering and they need help. You know, um, after Sandy flooded some of the tunnels a few years ago, they started having particular problems. And, you know, like I was taking New Jersey transit the other day to go see my mom in New Jersey and one of the tunnels had to be shut down and you end up with you know, sometimes hour-long delays when one of these tunnels isn't working. So we really depend on them. Um, but since they're getting old and, and having problems, uh, you know, it, it shows you how much trouble it can be to maintain them. Yeah, and so how does that work, the, the conversations around repairing the tunnels that were damaged by Hurricane Sandy? There are so many uh, considerations, right? There's There's the regular maintenance that has to happen. There's any repairs from a major event like that. And then there's the time and cost and everything that goes into diverting traffic if you have to shut one down for a while. I mean, what, what are the conversations like right now, Sarah, about how we repair both in the short term and the long term very old tunnels like this? Right. Well, basically what Amtrak uh, is saying is that we need to build a whole new tunnel across the Hudson in order to be able to repair the major ones that we have. Um, you know, if any one of these tunnels was shut down for a significant period of time, and we're talking a couple of years that would be needed to do the repairs that are, are needed, um, you know, commuters between New Jersey and New York would basically have no way of getting here. Um, you know, buses and ferries can pick up some of the traffic, but ultimately people who depend on those um, tunnels wouldn't be able to get to work. And so, you know, we're in, in the city, we're talking about um, building a whole, you know, tunnel project just like you're talking about building it in Connecticut, but only so we can continue using the ones that we have. Yeah. And so, Nasser, I want to ask you about that. The the way that we've built tunnels in the past, obviously, and as Sarah's talking about hundreds, uh, maybe a hundred years ago, and, and these are things that are built to last for a long time. But is there something new that we need to do as we consider big projects like this, Nasri? Maybe emergency tunnels or maintenance tunnels that are drilled alongside so that we can 
have overflow, we can make sure that we're always able to maintain these things in the right way? John, it's uh, it's interesting what uh, Sarah talked about because I was uh, uh, I was the one who did the inspection and assessment of the Amtrak tunnels under the Hudson and uh, two of the four tunnels under the East River after Sandy uh, after they were flooded with Sandy, and uh, the result of that it shows that there is significant deterioration that needs to be replaced and the salt water contaminated the existing uh, structure which will accelerate the deterioration. Uh, the interesting thing is if we shut down one of those tunnels, you would lose the service from having 24 trains an hour to only six trains an hour. So you would lose significant number of, of, of uh, ability of, to, of moving uh, commuters. Um, the, uh, the, the main important thing is when, when you design for a new facility like that and which we have been designing, uh, is you take into consideration a lot of factors and to prevent a major event such as uh, Hurricane Sandy flooding the, the tunnels by uh, uh, having precaution in advance and, uh, for example, uh, similar similar design for the Istanbul project was done, and everything was elevated higher up. So any any surge, any water surge, will not go into the tunnel itself, and there will be sufficient capacity to pump any water that might get in. Other places, they are putting. Uh, uh, gate at the portals to prevent water from flooding in. But the most important in my mind is the continual uh, regular maintenance, inspection and maintenance of, of tunnels. Because if those were done and deficiencies were identified early on, then a repair can be done and tunnels would last for a long, long time. Uh, any tunnel uh, facility, minimum life is 100 years and often will go to up to 120, 250 years. Well, Sarah, before we run out of time, I guess I should ask, in, in, in New York, as your governor says, we're going to spend $5 million on a feasibility study about a, a massive tunnel that would cost billions of dollars connecting Long Island and Connecticut. You know, are people in the city saying, look, we, we've got tunnels that are deteriorating right now. They're not built for maybe a world in which we have more big storm events like Sandy? Are people in New York saying, let's take care of what we got before we start building another tunnel, you know, from Long Island to Connecticut? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, people in New York City are a little bit um, dense about what's going on. It's mostly the people who have to come in and out of the city every day, or people who might want to be coming to Long Island from Connecticut who really think about this. But like, in New York, we're, you know, we worry about our subway tunnels and things like that. But we're a little bit... uh, less attentive to our our cross uh, border crossings. Sarah Lasco is a staff writer for Atlas Obscura. She's covered transportation and the environment for years, including writing about tunnels. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks also to Nasri Munfal, who's chairman of HNTV Tunnel Services, also an adjunct at Columbia University. Thank you for your expertise, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Transportation expert Yona Freemark will join us next. There's a lot of big ideas in transportation right now. Tunnels are just some of those ideas. He'll take a look at why so many big ideas and how feasible some of them are. You can join us, 860-275-7266. This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We've been fascinated by the idea floated by both Amtrak and New York's governor that we might build a tunnel under Long Island Sound. It's the sort of big idea in transportation that gets Yuna Freemark thinking. He's a city planner and project manager at the Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago. His blog is called The Transport Politic. He joins us today from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Yuna, welcome back to Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first of all, you heard some of our conversation about this proposed tunnel. I mean, when you hear a big project like that, yeah, sure, it could be transformative, but it's going to cost an awful lot of money. There are an awful lot of transportation needs in our region. I mean, when you hear about something like this, what do you think? I want people to know that it's very unlikely to happen. (laughs) It's the first thing they should know about these big projects. You know, um, year after year, big projects are proposed by political leaders all around the country, even all around the world. But the vast majority of them honestly don't come to fruition, at least not in the way that they're initially proposed. Yeah. And and they don't because, well, they're so expensive, they're so politically fraught. Or is it in part because they're not really attempting to do something that we need? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, every project is fulfilling some need. But the question is, what is the most important thing that we can do with the limited amount of money that we do have? Um, You know, our states and and cities and even the federal government always have limits on the amount of money that they're able to spend on transportation. And the result is that, you know, you can come up with as many projects as you'd like, but ultimately you're only going to be able to spend money on a certain number of them. And in the case of a project that would connect Connecticut and Long Island, you know, it's it's a good idea. But as a previous guest said, it's been proposed for more than 50 years. It proposed for more than 50 years, and, and you know, among the people who proposed that, Robert Moses, the, uh, the very famous builder, transformer of New York and so many, and so many other places around New York City, is, is Robert Moses the figure that Andrew Cuomo really wants to channel? Because obviously that legacy is so incredibly fraught now. There's an awful lot of urbanists and urban planners who, who say it's time to uh, reinvent the things that Robert Moses did to New York City. I mean, should he be invoking this name? You know, these comparisons with Robert Moses are are fascinating to me because Robert Moses was a man who went out of his way to destroy neighborhoods across New York City and and replace them with highways or, or other public infrastructure, forcing hundreds of thousands of people to move out of their homes. And honestly, I don't think we should be making comparisons with him in this day and age when, you know, that's something we should be avoiding at all cost. That said, Obviously, you know, the the fact that the Governor Cuomo is talking about big infrastructure is good news. It means he cares about our tra- transportation infrastructure. Um, but, you know, the reality is that governors and, you know, other individuals like Robert Moses for years have been talking about big infrastructure. This isn't that much of a departure from the norm. Okay, so not that much of a departure, but I, I will say, you know, we've been hearing over the course of the last several years, and you study this much more closely than I do, but I think it's fair to say there are an awful lot of infrastructure problems in America right now. I mean, we've got roads and bridges that are crumbling. We hear in Connecticut about many, many dozens of bridges that are past their useful life. We also have a need for more public transportation, a clamoring for that. I mean, if not big ideas now, then when? Because it seems as though there are a lot of problems that we do need to solve as far as our infrastructure goes. Listen, we, we definitely need big ideas. We absolutely do. I think one thing that we need to look at is the amount of money that we spend on infrastructure as a nation and in individual states and cities has declined quite substantially. It's declined by more than 25 percent as a share of our total economy since 1960. And that says a lot about our commitment to infrastructure. Um, you know, the the D.C. Metro shut down earlier this week for, for more than a day. And 
you know, commuters all across the Washington region were really, uh, you know, they had their commutes ruined by that. And that's that's a situation that we want to avoid. As you said, we have crumbling bridges. We have crumbling transit infrastructure. We have to make sure we develop new funding to address those problems. And then we can talk about big projects. What does that new funding look like? I mean, here in Connecticut, what uh, the governor's talking about is a very simple, in some ways, idea, which is uh, creating a, a transportation lockbox and certain um, funds would flow into that so that they would be only used for transportation projects. The problem in Connecticut and in many other states is is that when money flows into the general fund, it is often rated during times of fiscal uncertainty, and then it doesn't go back into the projects that it needs to go into. This is one simple way to fund some of this stuff, but how do you find the funding to do the things that we need to do state by state and also at the federal level? Well, this is actually a problem that states all across the country are confronting right now. You know, uh, the last time the federal gas tax was raised was back in 1993. And as a result, the amount of money we're collecting through that mechanism has declined say, quite substantially. And that's part of the reason why we have trouble funding new transportation infrastructure. A lot of states have actually been increasing the amount of money that they collect through their gas taxes. Most states have their own gas taxes. But other states have been looking at um, sales taxes to pay for transportation. And then in California, there's a cap-and-trade program that actually provides significant amounts of money for major new transportation infrastructure, specifically their high-speed rail project. Talk a little bit more about that, about what California is doing that maybe we can at least look at out here in the east. So what's interesting about California is that they went out of their way uh, back in 2006 to pass a bill that was designed to limit the amount of emissions being released by a variety of different sources in their state. And so they developed this cap-and-trade program, which basically says we're going to cap the amount of carbon emissions being released in our state, and then we're going to auction off permits to release carbon in the future. And the result of this is that the state has been able to generate a significant amount of money that they can then spend on public infrastructure of different sorts that's designed specifically to be environmentally friendly. And this is an interesting model, and it's one that other states have not yet undertaken. But it certainly suggests that it's possible to raise money in a new way and do it in a way that directly addresses a goal. In California, their their big goal is to reduce carbon emissions. And I think that's a goal that other states should be looking at quite closely. Of course, here in the Northeast, we've had long had this regional greenhouse gas initiative, states working together. But one thing, honestly, you know, that states here don't do well enough is we don't work together on a holistic plan, right? So maybe we'll work together on cap and trade and try to figure out how to reduce greenhouse gases. But we're not really connected in transportation projects in the way we should. California has the advantage of just being one really huge state with a bunch of people in it, as opposed to, say, New England, a bunch of disconnected states with different governors who might have different plans. Could that be part of our problem? We just we can't really connect some of our needs to uh, reduce greenhouse gas with our needs to keep people off the roads, with our needs to connect people and get them to work on time. You know, I think that's absolutely right, especially in the New York region where you have three states right next to one another and people commuting to and from those states all the time. California, you know, is is a very different model because they have so many people living in one state, two very large metropolitan areas, San Francisco and Los Angeles, that are located entirely within the state of California. And they can address their problems at the statewide level in a way that is not true in the Northeast. You know, you, you go from Washington to, uh, to Massachusetts and you see you, you go through many, many states. And some people have suggested, for example, that one of the reasons why we haven't been able to get really good fast rail services between Washington and Boston through New York 
because, frankly, you're having to deal with so many states in between. So getting better cooperation between the states to make sure that they are aligning their goals and their priorities is essential to make good transportation investment decisions. You know, so many states in between, and here in Connecticut, so many little towns that uh, the trains will go through. When you have town-by-town government across New England, every single backyard is kind of a NIMBY backyard. It it, it makes it harder. Yona Freemark is a city planner and project manager at the Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago. He's talking to us today from WBZ in Chicago, and his blog is called The Transport Politic. We'll take some of your calls and questions in a moment at 860-275-7266 about big transportation projects that we've been talking about here in Connecticut. He says maybe this tunnel idea is a non-starter, but there's a lot of other things on Governor Malloy's plan. I mean, one thing, Yona, that we always talk about, and it's true of everything in politics, any governor or any leader is going to say this is something that we need to do. But when it comes to transit, you're looking 20 and 30 years out. You are literally putting a down payment on something that will be used by the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the person in office. That's a really hard thing in our current political climate to break. How, how do we break out of that? Because we'll never really think into the future for these regions if we're continually doing it on a two- or four-year political cycle. That's absolutely right. You know, uh, a governor can propose a project today that won't be built for another 15 years. So the question is, how do you get that governor or others, you know, in the state legislature or mayors of cities to really push for major new infrastructure projects? And I think the answer is honestly just to to make the argument that it's necessary for them to do so, that it is necessary for their political uh, survival. Uh, you know, in, in New York City, one of the biggest problems they have is um, commuting on the Upper East Side. And right now they're building a new subway line on 2nd Avenue to actually address that problem. That subway line has been talked about for 100 years, and it's finally happening. But one of the reasons it's finally happening is that congestion on the subways has become completely, un, you know, impossible for people who are commuting day to day. And so what the political you know, leaders in New York State have noticed is that they have to respond to public demand for change. And if there is serious public dialogue in favor of a major project, then I think political leaders will address that problem in the end. So we need to increase democratic participation and advocacy in favor of these projects. Ah, but this gets to one of the other issues that's really important. You know, you want to respond to public demand for change. A subway line on the east side is something that a lot of people are going to clamor for. But in New York, all sorts of people ride the subway, right, including people who have a lot of political power. In an awful lot of cities, like some of the the cities here in Connecticut, the people who need the most from a public transit system are the people who have the least political voice. Part of what government is spending on when they spend on a public transportation system is is a fraction of the social safety net, right? The ability for people who who aren't of great means to be able to get to and from their job or their child's daycare. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit, about how we increase the availability of good public transit to all sorts of people, including those who don't have the loudest political voice. You know, I think that's a really good point. And it it really goes back to the question of why we're investing in transportation. You know, we can look at current travel demand. We can look at how many people go from one place to another and make decisions based on that alone. But we need to think more broadly. Transportation can't be understood in the silo, you know, in a silo by itself. And one way to think about transportation is, are we addressing social problems? Are we increasing social justice? Are we reducing economic inequality through transportation? And one of the ways I think we can do that, if we care about it, 
is to invest in public transportation. It can be a wonderful way to increase the ability of people who, who have low incomes to get to jobs, um, you know, reduce their commute times to work. But that requires political leadership that is working in favor of people who often aren't talking in the political environment. As you said, very specifically, and this is true outside of basically anywhere but New York and, and Chicago, mm-hmm. most political elites are not taking advantage of the public transportation system. They're not using it, and they don't experience the problems that people have on a day-to-day basis. So we have to get more people who experience the transit system on a day, you know, daily basis to be able to talk about it, to be able to say, this matters to me, we have to address this problem, or I'm not going to be able to get to work. I'm not going to be able to find a job. Unless we do that, we're going to continue encouraging, you know, increasing economic inequality, I think. This idea of investing in public transportation that obviously you and many others say is something we need to do is hard in part because it's expensive and it looks forward 20 or 30 years beyond the current political cycle. These are all things that are, are difficult. But another one is that you sort of have to pick a winner right now. I mean, you, you have to look at a public transit system and say, this is the sort of train we need or this is the sort of train speed we need. We need to build a subway or we need to build an above ground uh, system of trolleys. We need to figure out a new way to actually make our roads available for smart cars of the future that'll drive themselves. Isn't that part of the issue, too? Trying to pick winners now during the the technology that we have in 2016, when we probably will have something different in 10 or 15 years, how do we invest, pick the right winners, and, and make sure that we're investing in something that's going to be feasible a few years from now? You know, it's a really good question. How do we know that the technology that we're investing in today is going to be useful 20 years from now? The answer is we don't. We're never going to be entirely confident that people are going to use the same infrastructure today that they use, you know, in 20 years. And so that does raise questions as to whether we should invest in these major projects. On the other hand, we do know that there are significant needs to reduce congestion, uh, to reduce environmental impact, and things of that sort right now. And the question is, how do we best resolve them? In many ways, we should look at, you know, less expensive, cheaper alternatives to problems. Uh, If that means encouraging more bus services that we can provide right now instead of, uh, you know, having everyone drive to work, then that's a good option. On the other hand, there may be some situations where we simply have to invest in a big project if we're ever going to resolve the problem. And we can be relatively confident in some cases, for example, that people will still be riding the New York City subway in 20 years. There's no question about that. So investing, you know, $4 billion in a big project to resolve congestion on the New York City subway is a pretty, a pretty reasonable idea. On the other hand, investing in major new road capacity where we have a situation where fewer people are driving in many cases, where, uh, you know, the future of people driving themselves seems to be in doubt with automated cars and with services like Uber and Lyft, um, you know, we really should be questioning whether or not we need to invest in new road capacity. You know, we're, we've been uh, back and forth with the governor of our state who's talked about Amongst the many things he has has planned in his transportation plan, obviously more public transportation, expansion of busways that we have, a lot of things that many planners say are really, really good ideas. But he's also talked about widening the Highway 95 that goes all the way through the state. You seem to be suggesting that investment like that is not necessarily something that makes a whole lot of sense right now. What he and some others would say is, but look, we have all these cars on the roadway right now. We have such deep, deep congestion problems. How do we solve these near-term problems that we're going to have without being able to provide a little bit more, um, I don't know, service for people along a very crowded corridor like I-95? 
Well, this is going to sound infuriating for those of you who are listening to this, uh, you know, in your cars right now. But the reality is that you can't really solve congestion problems by increasing the size of roads. I know that sounds wild, but the evidence has demonstrated very clearly that when you actually expand the size of the road, people will respond by driving more or more people will drive. And the reality is that congestion in some cases can actually get worse. Houston recently expanded a major freeway going through the center of their city. And the result was actually more congestion. Same thing happened in Los Angeles in the last few years. So we need to be very careful when we talk about using new expansions on highways to resolve, uh, you know, congestion problems, because I don't think it will work. Okay, last thing for you, Yona. And, you know, you, you start off the top by saying, look, this, this kind of pie-in-the-sky idea that we're going to build a tunnel connecting Long Island and, and Connecticut, it's probably not going to happen. Way too expensive, way too complicated, sure. But there, maybe there's a sense that whether or not we're talking about that or super high-speed rail service in the Northeast or something, that when we talk about and we study really big ideas in transportation, really big ideas in moving us around in a new way, it's almost like a moonshot, right? It makes people think about the possibilities, even if they're not feasible. Is there something to that? Is there something to the idea of dreaming big in transportation, even if it's never going to happen? Yes, absolutely. We have to have political leaders and people on the ground who want change in our society. And one of the ways we get change is through new major investments in our transportation system. You know, back in the early 1900s, the New York City City Council basically went forward and pushed for new subways across the city to replace the elevated lines. And that has radically changed the way New York City works. Back in the 1950s, President Eisenhower said, I want a highway infrastructure, the interstate highway system, to connect people all around this country so that they can get around from place to place without any barriers. And that actually has radically changed the way people experience the country, and in many ways for good. So we need people to stand up and say, this matters to us. We want change. We want, for example, better public transportation all over this country. And we want to do that by investing in certain major projects. That kind of that kind of, uh, you know, entrepreneurship in favor of new projects is absolutely necessary if we want to have a future that is, you know, better than what we have right now in transportation. Yona Freemarker, city planner and project manager at the Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago. His blog is called The Transport Politic, and he joined us today from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Yona, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us on Where We Live. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we're going to talk about another tunnel project, the Heroes Tunnel on Route 15 in Connecticut. The DOT Commissioner James Redeker will be here with us. Uh, If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. We're talking tunnels on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, there's a big effort underway to bring high-speed Internet to residents across Connecticut and create competition for the existing cable and broadband companies. This comes at a time when the state's business climate is under scrutiny and the state budget is in a bit of a crisis. So what's the best solution for expanding and improving Internet connectivity in Connecticut? That is our conversation on Monday's Where We Live. Back in December, the state of Connecticut announced transportation improvements, including some changes to Heroes Tunnel in New Haven. The plans include digging a third tunnel while repairs are made to Heroes Twin Tubes, which carry Route 15, otherwise known as the Wilbur Cross Parkway, through New Haven. Joining us by phone to talk about this project and where it stands is James Redeker. He's commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. Uh, Commissioner, thanks so much for joining us again here on Where We Live. 
John, it's great to be with you again. I, I'm really glad you could join us. You know, we've been talking about a lot of big projects, including projects that who knows if they're ever going to happen, you know, digging under Long Island Sound. But here's here's a very serious, a near-term thing. Maybe you can tell us about Heroes Tunnel and what sort of condition it's in. Absolutely. So this is a uh, tunnel built in, opened in 1949. Um, so it is uh, it's an old facility, um, and it is the only tunnel um, that the DOT is responsible for in Connecticut. It's about... Uh, 1,200 feet long. And over the course of time, we have done, um, probably 10 years ago, some major rehabilitation work to the tunnels. But as we have and always do, we inspect the tunnels on a regular basis and uh, have seen additional uh, water uh, conditions coming through the tunnel. And of course, that's an indication that, uh, that we need to take a serious look at what's going on. Of course, we don't know what's causing water seepage to occur because you can't see it. It's under, uh, it's under the, the, the hillside um, and underneath a state park and a trail. So um, as we uh, begin our investigation into what to do, uh, the choices are many, uh, but they range from significant additional rehabilitation of the existing tunnel uh, up to and including uh, building a new tunnel, um, and, and in this case, it would be in the northbound direction. But uh, as you know, one of our primary goals is to, um, as much as possible, avoid uh, major impacts to our traveling customers, and that has been a hallmark of delivering a lot of our projects. And you can imagine that um, shutting down a tunnel to do a major rehabilitation job would be just devastating to travel for quite some time. Mm. So, and so as yeah. you look at, right, as, if that's an option, and it is, um, it still only would provide us uh, some limited lifespan, or, you know, compared to a new facility. And uh, so we have been advancing, um, and, it, and it's a fundamental part, a key initiative within the governor's uh, ramp-up toward Let's Go CT, we're advancing a design of a new northbound tunnel um, to be able to provide new capacity and then go back and rehabilitate an old tunnel, uh, one, you know, one of the other two, so that we never have uh, significant congestion and, and impact on our driving public. So I think one thing that people who are listening right now would be asking is, okay, we, we got to study. we got to make sure we find the funding to do this right. When when would this start? I mean, the, when you and whenever you and I talk, Commissioner, it's always it's always funny. I mean, we start talking about projects that I mean, you, you and I will both be retired and sitting there on our front porch drinking <laughs> lemonade by the time anything gets done. I mean, are we talking about something that happens in the next couple of years, or when are we talking here? Uh, yeah, so this is a project that actually could uh, could happen a lot sooner than many. Um, it's a uh, an estimated uh, let's just ballpark number right at this point, but an estimated two hundred million dollar tunnel project. Um, and, um, you know, in the context of our program, $200 million is an achievable um, target in terms of a project cost. Um, we have, we're beginning design um, and design reviews uh, this spring. Um, and the, the current estimates uh, of $200 million are being that, – that number is, is a planning number. But we're in a, a preliminary design effort that's costing about $5 million um, to get us to um, uh, you know, a final design on this project. It's possible, having said that, that <clears throat> about 2019, we would be finished design and could be, begin construction. Again, uh, priorities and funding dependent, but it is uh, a, a near-term achievable project relative to uh, things like digging a, you know, a, a rail line or a, a, or a highway tunnel under Long Island Sound, obviously. 
So you're, you're talking about this being the only tunnel that's under the DOT's purview mm-hmm. that you have to you have to maintain. So there 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 aren't any others. I mean, what, what do you do when you're starting to do tunnel construction? You guys aren't you know where I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, Jim. There are a lot of tunnels, right? But but yeah. here in Connecticut, I mean, where do you get the expertise? How do you figure out how to build a third sure. tunnel if you got to? Of course. So um, you know this is a this is a project as you said that is a little bit outside of our normal everyday um, you know practice. So. We would uh, contemplate this being a project done um, under a, uh, probably a, a special procurement. What we something we we're thinking about is a construction manager, general contractor project, or what we call CMGC. This is where you pair the designer with the c- construction company from the beginning of the project, <clears throat> so that the you're actually looking to bring the best of both worlds to the table um, at the beginning of the project and. We're employing that concept actually today as we're designing for the replacement of the Walk Railroad Bridge, another significant undertaking that is a very unusual construction project. So in this case, we would be looking for uh, tunnel expertise, but we would pair that with uh, you know, designers that, uh, that, that uh, could work together from the beginning of the project. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. If you uh, are frequently on the Wilbur Cross through this area and you've been wondering about this tunnel as it leaks water, give us a call. We're on with James Redeker, Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. I guess it gets me to something I wanted to ask about this this roadway. I mean, it's called the Wilbur Cross Parkway there in New Haven. A little further down state, it's called the Merritt Parkway. It's this historic roadway that in many ways is a little bit out of time. It, it, it connects many, many people on a daily basis, but it's not built like the modern highways of a, an I-95 or, or an IE4. It's also bigger and has higher speeds than some of the surface roads that we're used to traveling on there. What do you see as the future of roads like the Wilbur Cross, the Merritt Parkway, where there's this sort of unusual construction style, unusual rights of way, sure. and, and, and really don't have the sorts of connections that more modern uh, roadways have? Obviously, these, uh, as you've mentioned, these are two uh, unique uh, segments of road, uh, you know, actually one road, but <clears throat> they were built um, with a concept uh, historically of a parkway. Um, and I think historically, if you go back in time, um, people would take Sunday drives out of New York City, bring a blanket, uh, park their car on the side of the road, have a picnic. Um, and in fact, there used to be ice cream trucks parked along the way. It was uh, an outing as much as, a, you know, compared to what it is today, which is a major commuting path. <laughs> you you, you got to bring those ice cream truck, uh, trucks back, I think. <laughs> anyway, please there continue. There you go. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, so the characteristic of that as a, as a parkway and um, some very, very unique and historic bridge structures that are just absolutely stunning – um, are things that we believe should be preserved and the character that should be preserved. And that means that um, as we think about that highway, we make investments uh, to bring safety conditions to the best we can do. And we are, as we've rehabilitated the roadway, we, you know, we fix drainage, we fix safety pieces, we uh, clear the safety zones so that we have uh, a safe highway. Uh, but we need to make sure that we continue to post the speeds and that people obey the speed limit because, as you said, the nature of exits and entrances and the actual design speeds are not for uh, 65 mile an hour plus highways. But, they but, are yeah, but, for, for much lower. And it's it's one of the interesting things, though, because look, I, 
parkland preservation. These are historic roads. The bridge structures, as everyone knows who's traveled the Merritt, it's it's beautiful. And and I am and many other people are as much for the preservation of historic roadways and a, a certain type of um, attachment to the past as, as anyone else. The problem is, is that these are also roadways that do move people uh, and an awful lot of people, and probably many more people than they were ever designed for. That's it, true. Is, that, but but that, is, is, it time, is it time to modernize and really think differently about the fact that this Route 15 connection that uh, is so, so important to so many people m- might not be best viewed as a relic of the 1920s? No. So, I, I mean, I think it has a role in today's world, and it, ha- it is part of, a, of an integrated system. Um, you know, the Merritt was built and Route 1 was built the next side of, alongside of it, but actually preceding all of that was the New Haven Rail Line that made the same connection um, and really was the building block of, uh, of our economy and those towns. Um, and so when you think about the railroad and I-85 and Route 1 and the Merritt as a real corridor of activity, um, there is a place um, for the Merritt in, and to ret- ret- retain I think it's parkway uh, nature and character, provided that, um, you know, we do the investments uh, around safety and and that uh, uh, those investments give us uh, conditions that, you know, that I think fit within Connecticut's transportation network appropriately. Well, let's just get to the phones quickly. Doug's in Manchester. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. You're on with Jim Redeker. Hi, Doug. Hi. Actually, I'm from Winchester, John. Oh, I'm you know, sorry. Uh, oh, I, I said Manchester here, but you're from Winchester, my hometown. What, what's on your mind, Doug? Yeah. I'm wondering if you've done any cost comparisons on just eliminating that tunnel going through the West Rock Ridge and blasting through the rock, because I commuted through that tunnel a great deal of my working life, and it's been problematic for as long as I can remember. Yeah. Um, you're probably right, although, I mean, the, the, the tunnel itself is, we have not had any structural issues with it at all. This is an anticipatory, uh, you know, look as we see some water seepage and we want to prevent any issues. Um, so I don't think there's any any urgent issue um, that we're that we're you know compelled to work on. Um, it is picking the right solution. And uh, when we think about the right solution, understand we understand that this is a, this is a structure that goes under uh, you know a state park and a trail network. And and frankly, um, you know, blasting through that and eliminating that would be, I think, a massive undertaking. And we haven't done a cost estimate for that, frankly. Um, I just don't think it's appropriate to even consider um, what that would do in terms of the park system that we have, um, and that's a very essential part of um, the New Haven area. And, and I think that alone uh, would be something that would uh, would cause us pause. So we're not looking at blasting through that. Rather, um, we are looking at this tunnel concept. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for your question. Uh, Commissioner Redeker, while I've got you for the last couple of minutes, last time you were on, we, we went through a whole series of things that are on your plate. Big projects, small projects, fixed projects, and, of course, the project you and the governor want to have done, which is this transportation lockbox so that you can help pay for all this stuff. What updates can you give us? I mean, what are the big things on your plate right now uh, at this point in our legislative session and also in your, in your place uh, at the DOT? What are the things that are on your plate that you're really most concerned with right now? Well, I, you know, I, I don't. It's I wouldn't call it a concern. I think that uh, what what we are doing here at the department is uh, advancing as fast as we can, uh, as cost effectively as cost effectively as we can, necessary upgrades and improvements to our system. And you know, this week was an opportunity for us to focus on uh, a very important aspect of that, which is uh, the widening going on in Waterbury, which was 
you know, an example of a project a decade late in construction because we didn't have enough funding. Um, and frankly, we've got a terrific team out there. And as we are now doing that project, um, we are significantly ahead of schedule and may shorten um, our anticipated completion by uh, 10 months or more, which is really good news for the customers. But as you as you travel through that area, we've actually got um, a very positive uh, city in Waterbury with uh, reportedly very few you know criticisms or complaints. Everybody is very, very happy with the way it's being done. And I'm thrilled that um, the team that we've got out there as contractors are actually getting this project done much faster than we expected. So it is, for me, that is what I'm focused on is getting projects done, getting them done quickly, getting them done with the least impact to the customers, and then uh, demonstrating that uh, the improvements we're making are the right ones because in the end, we have a lot more of this to do, and we will need more money. And so uh, this session, uh, just this past week, we did get the Transportation Committee to uh, approve the advancement of the lockbox legislation um, to the full legislature, and I think that's a terrific milestone. We'll continue to work on that because, as you said, uh, we really do need a guaranteed funding source and something that the, the citizens of Connecticut can depend on that money that goes in will be spent on these very important projects. Well, and we just have one minute left, but but I should ask that given the fact that we are are still finding ourselves in a in a deficit during this fiscal year, and we're still looking at sol- uh, solving problems for next fiscal year, there are an awful lot of cuts coming to whether it's state workforce or anything else. Wh- how do you see any of that, whether it's bonding uh, projects that are maybe being rolled back or state uh, uh, workforce layoffs? How does that affect the DOT and some of the things you're trying to do? It's a good question. And and as you know, uh, last year, the legislature moved to take uh, the action to dedicate um, sales tax money and all existing uh, transportation funding into a special source that's the state transportation fund. And the Department of Transportation is fully funded within that uh, source of funding. Um, as a result, we have available resources sufficient to sustain our operation and Um, It is forecast to have sufficient revenues to support operations and uh, our capital program um, over the next several years. So um, in that regard, we're not subject to the same budget pressures as others because of how we're funded today. Uh, James Redeker is commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Transportation. Thanks so much for joining us for a few minutes. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. You can continue this conversation online. Go to WNPR.org slash where we live. Thanks to Lydia Brown, who produced today's program. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live.